The Canadian Church Leaders Podcast is made possible because of our friends at Compassion Canada. Compassion has set out to eliminate poverty in the lives of children in Jesus' name. But all I'm saying is, when literally the church is turning on itself, and the left and the right are yelling, and everyone's deconstructing, I'm just telling you, calling is what you've got and not much else. Well, hey guys, it's Jason here, and I want to welcome you to another episode of the podcast. Today, we've got a friend of mine, a Canadian pastor I'm just thrilled for you to meet, Pastor John Thompson. John Thompson is the pre-gene and vision pastor at Sanctus Church in Toronto, Ontario, or just outside of Toronto, and it's formerly known as C4 Church, but they went through a name change a number of months ago, and now they are Sanctus Church. He's been faithfully serving this community for over 20 years, and I so enjoy any time I get to chat with John on the phone or in interviews like this. He's someone in my life who, through his words and his example, moves me to prayer and intimate with Jesus. And behind the scenes, I've seen John come alongside of pastors and friends across the country and support them and encourage them in ways that maybe no one will ever find out about. And so he's not just leading where he is in Ontario, but making such a kingdom impact across the country. In our conversation, he lets us into the story of Sanctus Church, their communities, calling, and some of the unique dynamics at play amongst the team. And what I loved most about getting to hear John was the way he unpacked his theology of spiritual gifts and disciplines based on the life of Jesus, and really the outworking of that theology in their community, in their staff, and in their church. John's written a book called Convergence that I'll talk more about in the interview and afterwards, and it dives into this idea of Jesus not just being Lord and Savior, but actually our model for spirit and ministry. I was so thankful for his encouragement and wisdom in the conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Here we go, John Thompson. Uh, well, hey, John, it is such a privilege to spend time with you today. I really like every time we hang out, and I always love picking your brain. I know that I always force you to do most of the talking. I just ask the questions, and so that's what we're going to do today, uh, but appreciate you making time in the midst of everything going on to hang out. It's great to see you. Thanks for having me today. And for those that don't know you very well, can you just give us a little window into your life, family, church, work, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm married, just celebrated 20 years of marriage. Congratulations. uh, This week. It's big. It's a miracle. Uh, And I got three children under 12, Hannah, Emma, Noah. I've been on staff in this church for 23 years. This is my 23rd year of ministry. Uh, We're a multi-site church on the east side of Toronto. Uh, about three and a half thousand people are connected to our community. Um, yeah, that's sort of the broad. Now that's pre-COVID. What we are now, uh, different conversation, different podcast. Well, who knows? Maybe we'll get there today. There's so many things I want to chat with you about. But I just, uh, maybe to start, you talk about a 23-year journey at a church. You're at Sanctus Church. Some people might have known it as C4. Can you tell us a little bit about, I know you could probably take a very long pass at that, but we had Ho Ming on. I don't know if you know Ho Ming. Yeah, very from well. Richmond Hill, and he talked about his long journey at the church. And it's just yep. so special to hear uh, when people move through a journey with a church over time and then find themselves in senior leadership. And so could you tell us a little bit about your journey uh, at the church and how you found yourself in the role that you're in now? Yeah, sure. I'll try to do this real quick. The, uh, the church was founded in 1985 uh, by a group of young adults who all got married and decided to leave the big city of Toronto and come to this eastern suburbs of Pickering, which now are a hardcore city. And there was 50 of them. They met in a primary school and then this incredible 
Um, you know, a group of people got together. They built a building. This was the first church to use small groups in the area. The first group church to use drama at church, which is so passe now, but back then was so revolutionary. Um, they attempted to reach seekers, heavily influenced by Willow, sort of that whole movement in late 80s, early 90s. One service, two services. The sucker kept growing. More and more people started coming to faith uh, in Jesus. I joined the church when I was 15, so way before I joined on staff. Uh, I started attending the youth group, um, and then we ran out of room, and then we were like, what do we do? And uh, an amazing Christian guy out here who was famous for doing this actually gave the land I'm sitting on right now for $2. Wow. And, and it was 15, 20, 15 minutes away from where we were. So in the mid-90s, we moved into a high school and did portable church before everyone did You know, portable church. There was no portable church industries. There was nothing like that at all. Uh, I was doing my undergrad in theology and became the youth pastor then unexpectedly, 98, June 98, and then was on staff 98 to 2005, moved into this new building, sat over a thousand people. We're in the middle of a farm field. Who's ever going to come? We had three offices built. There was only three staff. (laughs) And and then I did youth ministry for seven and a half years, introduced pre-adolescence, took grade five and sixes out of children's ministry, did that launched a college and career program. I had, a, I had 150 volunteers, uh, had two staff members. And so we were running a junior high, senior high, and young adults. There's 150 in young adults, 150 in senior high, 80 in junior high. And we experienced a renewal. So pre-alpha, we ran the Quest movement out here. So, and all the churches worked together and there was a renewal that took place. Hundreds of teenagers became Christians in a period of five years. It got so wild as a youth pastor, I was running communion services in secular high schools at lunch for 150 students. Like I've never, I'm just starting to see the glimpses of it again, actually at where you are. Um, So that, and then when I was 29 years old, I was praying and everything was great. And then had an encounter with Jesus where he said, I'd be the senior pastor of the church by the time I was 30. And I was like, that's wrong. That's gotta be pride. That's gotta be ego. This is, you know, all this stuff. I didn't say anything. And then wildly it happened. The senior pastor was told by the Lord he was done. He had been on staff for 22 years, grew the the church from 50 to 1,000. And at 30 years old, I took over the church, 1,000 people in 2005, no vision, core values that we weren't sure about. The last guy was a Willow-inspired business guy who was a topical preacher. I'm a charismatic expository um, theologian. And so from that point forward, started talking about a specific vision of reaching 10,000 people, which was our whole history behind that. Uh, started preaching on through exposition through scripture. So every single place where we all disagreed with that we had never talked about suddenly divided the church. So women in ministry, charismatic gifting, social justice in the suburbs all happened within the first seven years of my church. And then hired a guy, amazing guy named Dave Adams, who co-leads with me right now. He started doing implementation introduced plan one and uh, a whole strategic plan to give steps to the vision. And we just started plan two a year ago. Uh, Like I said, launched multiple sites and now are praying for six new locations uh, in the next run. Okay. I want to just revisit every single part of that. (laughs) Like I just think there's so many themes that are so important for us as church leaders in Canada and around the world, we're wrestling with things like succession, uh, changing culture. Like that is such a fascinating thing. I just was really impacted by your statement that 
the work of expositional scripture was somehow a driver for addressing cultural issues. I think that's fascinating. Um, but before we go into those different themes, one thing I want to just highlight because I want people to know you is yeah, you yeah. you mentioned yourself as a charismatic ex- expositor or theologian. And I think this is what's so fascinating about you and why I just enjoy spending time with you is it's, you can't put John Thompson in a bucket and just say he's just part of this camp or that camp. You really do break molds. And it's it, it, it reminds me so much of the Bible when I'm spending time with you because you have such a love for the scriptures and and the truth of Jesus, but the fullness of his kingdom. And so can you just talk a little bit about what you mean when you say I'm a charismatic sure. theologian? Because yeah. you know, knowing you for a few years, I get a picture of that. But for the listeners, like help us understand, like what do you mean by both those things that play in your life? So I'll make it more complicated uh, and make it more biblical. So I'm a Calvinist, charismatic, small C Catholic, megachurch pastor. Okay, well, so we- Man. So we, we jokingly say we worship like uh, we worship like charismatics here. We serve communion like Anglicans. I preach like a Southern Baptist, but I think more like an Anglican at the end of the sermon than a Southern Baptist. And what we made the determination was we determined that we were going to uh, make sure that uh, all these elements stayed within our church because we're going to spend eternity with each other. So let's try to do it on this side. So we don't view any of this as contradiction. Uh, we actually view this through the lens of gift ministry. And so since we're not cessationists, we're continuists, uh, we have no problem with going through Romans for 23 weeks, at the same time casting out demons, at the same time running a mega church. In other words, if John, we, I've joked with Carrie before and with you, you know, and others that, you know, if, if John Wimber and, and Dallas Willard and Andy Stanley and John Stott all planted a church together uh, and, and, you know, Hillsong did the worship, uh, you'd get us. And, and, and it's hard because there's a lot of people who don't get that. A lot of people can't handle that, but we have found that it's positioned us to attract all sorts of spiritually curious and spiritually experiential people. It's also allowed us because we have an intellectual robust base to attract intellectuals. So we experience people into the kingdom and we think people into the kingdom. But if you don't have all that working together, you only have one door, not two. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we also are just so tired of different parts of gift orientation declaring war on each other versus learning just what part of the order you should be in. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, the language we use, you know, we use it all the time. And this is a great uh, practical on the ground way of how we do this. We talk about prompting and planning. We inquire of the Lord to see if he wants us to do something specific. If there's nothing, common faithfulness. Matthew 28, Acts 2, all the things. If he tells us something specific, so we, we, we use the disciplines like Dallas Willard. We use spiritual gifts, you know, like the charismatics to discern it. And then we become Andy Stanley and build the biggest, most scary plan out of the weird moment. And it's just natural. It's so. Tell me the biggest tension points, because this is something that didn't just happen overnight, but you've lived into over time. When you're trying to live into that that value of saying, hey, we want to plan faithfully, thoughtfully. We're also really open and want to seek God for his specific plan. And I think for individuals and probably within organizations, especially especially when you're leading a, leading a large congregation, there's going to be tension points. Can you talk about over the years as you guys have lived into this, what some of those tension points have been almost as a way of just helping us as listeners, if we want to lean into this kind of these tensions ourselves, how to be warned or have eyes to see it? Well, first of all, you have to theologically define what you mean by everything. 
Because if you're not using the same language, you'll mean something else. So we live in a post-denominational porous reality, in a post-Christian reality. So you'll have a burnt-out Pentecostal who just wants to be taught, sitting beside a desperate Baptist who wants to encounter the Holy Spirit, sitting beside a Hindu who just became a follower of Jesus. And when I say the word prophecy, what do you think they all mean? Right. So you've got to work a lot on common scripting, and then you also have to work a lot on not a dismissing experience, but defining experience as it will work in your own context, which the incarnation helps us do all the time. So that type of stuff, you have to take stands in certain things because you just have to be honest about what you are and what you're not, uh, where you're going in this stuff. And the other thing I would just say too, that really matters. I use that phrase, common faithfulness and specific calling. Um, this is this is critical, and you know I've talked about this for years. I've written on this. You and I have talked about this, and I've talked about this with others. I d- God is not our genie. Mm. So you hear in a lot of preaching. If you listen, God will speak. No, He won't. He's God. He's not on your agenda. He He's the sovereign King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He's just fine. Mm. But we have to be in the posture through spiritual disciplines, as Jesus did to do what the Father, listen to what the Father wants and then do it. So you have to posture yourself to say to the Lord, do you want us to do something specific? If he doesn't speak, you use wisdom and common faithfulness. You preach the gospel, you take, serve communion, you love the poor, you, you know, th- that doesn't change. But if he gives you a specific assignment, well, that changes everything. Because now you have divinely given guardrails for your community. Mm-hmm. Most pastors basically think common faithfulness will produce results and we just do that. Where I go, how about we just stop and inquire of the Lord if there is a seasonal or long-term task? And if there is, that becomes the vision, not the mission. We all share the same mission. Matthew 28, go into all the world, produce disciples. I don't care how you say it. We all say the same thing with this, you know, whatever. That doesn't change anywhere. Mission, don't confuse mission and vision. Mission stays the same, but vision Oh, that's a whole different ballgame. So I would say in our context, we were given a God-given specific assignment in a very supernatural way, which defined a number and a time and a place. And everything we do has to push towards that or we say no to that. If God doesn't speak that way, then you need as a leader to go before the Lord and say, do you want me to work towards felt needs of our community or just practice common faithfulness? It's not a battle between one or the other. It's just being open to both and seeing what the Lord says. Wow. And then what was it like for you and your team to uh, discover the unique call that you felt on St. Dis Church? Well, it happened to me first within the same time period before I became the senior pastor. Mm-hmm. And and so um, I had to talk to the board even about the experience because we weren't charismatics. We had no context for words of knowledge or prophecy. We had no context for what do you mean God spoke to you? You mean you read Romans 13? Well, no, I actually mean this, but I don't mean this. And then I had to learn how to communicate that to the church without sounding arrogant and then introducing the idea of disciplines and in spiritual, what we call spiritual theology, at the same time still being a grounded, small e, traditional, confessional, evangelical. So it took seven years, seven years, theologically helping our church understand what is now normative here. Now our new problem is our whole church is much larger, way more multicultural, way more diverse, and now we're having trouble implementing the very things God has talked to us about gifts and disciplines across a mega church in multiple locations with multiple generations with multiple cultures. So that's mm-hmm. podcast in three years from now. Yeah, let us know when you have all that figured out. And yeah, no, pro- no problem. That'd be so simple. Oh, man. Well, thanks for sharing that. I think it would be really helpful actually to talk a little bit about convergence. So 
John, you, you took a lot of time to unpack some of the thoughts we're talking about. Specifically, you know, you refer to spiritual gifts, spiritual discipline, and how these two things work kind of as a one-two punch or hand-in-hand. Um, I'd love for you just to take us into the thesis of the book, Conversions. And for those listening, uh, I highly recommend it. It not only tells the story of Sanctus Church, but also gives a, a, a real detailed look at some of the inner workings, theology, and philosophy, some of the things we're talking about. But give us kind of the thesis and walk us through some of the key ideas. Yeah, so really quickly... Uh, as we were going through this process of becoming a mega church and all these people were being baptized and all these conversions were taking place and we were still running Awana and still running prayer meetings and still preaching. And how do you put all that in a box? I started asking not just philosophical questions. I started asking key theological questions. So I started the book like this. You know this, Jay, and I'll share this again. So when I was in junior high, I had a radical encounter with Jesus and was called into ministry. And I went to my youth pastor and said, where's all the stuff? And he said, what do you mean? And I said, all the stuff. He says, you're a junior high. You got to be a little bit more specific. And I said, where's all the miracles and all the cool stuff? And he said to me, appropriately trying to guard my expectations, Jesus is God. You're not God. You need to change your expectations for what's, what's going to happen. And I went, okay, I appreciate that. As I started walking through the scriptures a lot more, I realized his pastoral intent was right but his theological presupposition was wrong. Mm-hmm. And so what we started, I started asking myself the question, expectations kill marriages, expectations kill churches. And lots of people over-preach or under-preach, and I, I had no time for either. So I asked myself the question, in a post-Christian, hostile culture, where is there guaranteed power to do ministry from, even if there's no money, everyone sucks, and we're not sure what to do next? <laughs> I mean, that's the real question. If we had no money, like, how do we do this? And then I started reading John and, you know, Jesus is in John 5, 19. The son can do nothing by himself. He can only see what his father's doing. And I was like, I don't get that. I'm a hardcore Trinitarian. Of course, Jesus knows what the father and what, like, that makes sense. And then Jesus, of course, in John 14, 12 says, and oh, by the way, the same things I'm doing, you'll do too. And I looked at my church and said, I don't believe that. And I know people say, oh, that means the apostles. No, it doesn't. Read the context. Be honest. Anyone who believes in me. So I was like, okay, so how do I pair the second person of the Trinity who's always forever been worshipped, the immutability of God, God never changes, with this idea that Jesus somehow had to listen to his dad while he was down here. So what I did is I began to work out Philippians 2. So I all call this upstairs and downstairs. Philippians 2, you know, that great hymn that says that Jesus takes on human flesh. And, and, and I expound this where, you know, Paul uses all this shocking language in there that he is equal to the Father, which means he is God, which means you're declaring this, this Nazarene is the creator, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it says, and yet he chose not to grasp to his divinity. And what you begin to see there is Jesus, though he remains God, the second person of the Trinity, never loses anything, chooses not to access his divinity. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the song says it how? Well, he takes on human flesh and he dies a, a terrible death and then he's exalted. But the question I asked was, between Christmas and Easter, how did he not access his divinity? And so when I read Jesus's baptism, I was like, oh my goodness, why did the Holy Spirit have to come on Jesus? Why is the third person of the Trinity landing on the second person of the Trinity? Like, he's already got everything he needs. And then I was like, oh my goodness, Jesus is not just our Savior and Lord, he's our model. Mm-hmm. He chose not to access his divinity, even though he remained divine, so he could model for us what a normal Christian life is. So then I had to ask the question, well... Jesus seems to be listening to the Father and doesn't know what's going on next. Jesus says, I don't even know when I'm coming back. I'm like, how do you not know that? You're God. 
And Jesus doesn't do any ministry till after he's 30. No miracles, no new teaching. Right when the Holy Spirit lands on him, suddenly he's doing all this stuff. And it says in Luke 3, Luke 4, the book of Acts, Jesus was led by the Spirit, forced by the Spirit, kicked by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. And I'm like, what is, I, I read all the books on the, what is going, and I went, oh my goodness, Jesus is modeling what a normal Christian life looks like. And then I got it. Oh, I can be like Jesus, even though I'm not God. Because Jesus used spiritual disciplines and spiritual gifts. So Jesus had the gift of teaching. And Jesus had the gift of miracles. And so when Jesus was casting out demons, he didn't do it out of his divinity. He did it out of the gift of miracles by the power of the Spirit to model what the church would look like. Which means when Jesus says in John, you'll do the same things I've been doing, not you, Jason Ballard, you the people. And so then when you get to Paul, you suddenly go, oh my goodness, we're the bride of Christ. We're the body of Christ. We have the same spirit. We have access to the same character. And the gifts of the spirit, which are distributed sovereignly, it's not a buffet you get to choose. He gets, you get to, he says what you get. Suddenly we get to be like Jesus that way. And everything, suddenly the expectations changed in our church. Renewal broke out because people started finding out their gifts, using their gifts and realized though, though Jesus was God, we still could imitate him. Because most of us grew up in church and said, oh, uh, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and I'm supposed to be like him, but I can never really be like him. Mm -hmm. Yes, you can, in the same power. And so what we've happened here is renewal broke out when people started, we identified gifts, we defined the gifts, we started training the gifts, we empowered people in the gifts, and we started mutually submitting to each other. And that's when everything changed. And Convergence, like I said, the book is the theological bias, history, an orthodox working out of this, and then on the ground definition, and then all the problems we've had trying to implement it. I love it. Um, I really do recommend the book because it's it is it's a theology, it's a practice, and it's uh, an example, and um, and it really does give a window into some of the steps you took. One piece that I feel like I should highlight that kind of I think rounds out the picture, and you've alluded to it, is this idea of complementary gifts, right? Um, this idea, and, and you'll do a better job, so you explain this for me and correct me if I'm wrong, but really the idea when you say like, hey, we can be like Jesus, the idea that Jesus was operating in this fullness of gifting, Correct. but then the body of Christ works that out, individuals operating unique interdependent gifts. And that's a huge value for you and the church that you're leading. And so you just speak to that idea of interdependent gifts and what that means for us as a working that out working that out on the ground? Well, well, first of all, I'll step back before I do that. And I'll just say to every pastor listening, okay, and this is important. Never confuse natural gifts and acquired gifts and spiritual gifts. Talk to this, me. Well, this matters because natural gifts is what you're born with. Acquired gifts is what you learn, but you don't need the Holy Spirit in the room to be a good athlete. You don't need the Holy Spirit in the room to learn accounting. You can use those things for the kingdom, but they're not guaranteed places of encounter and power. The Mm -hmm. only guaranteed place of power you've got is spiritual gifts because the Holy Spirit actually has to be operating in you and through you for that thing to happen. Mm -hmm. So, So let me ask the question, how much of your ministry and how much of your equipping is based on natural and acquired gifts and not spiritual gifts? It's not saying those two things are irrelevant, but there's no guaranteed power. So, so here's the example. Have you ever sat under someone who preaches and you're like, mm, wow, not a gift, but thank you, versus someone who's got the gift and you go, oh my goodness, what just happened? You know this. Every, everyone knows this, right? Uh, you feel it all the room. The, the person who has the discipline of mercy and the gift of mercy is like chalk 
fingernails on a chalkboard versus like being hugged. It's night and day, right? So here's all I want to say about gifts. Almost everything you do in your ministry better have guaranteed power because everything else we tried doing isn't working anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's incredible. And then when you define all 21 gifts, give definition to them in your context, then you need to start saying, well, what p- gifts pair well together? Because it's not just about office. I mean, I'm an elder. I'm a senior leader. I have a title lead pastor. But I will regularly, in other contexts, submit to others who don't have any of those titles because actually their gift is what's needed in the moment. Mm. It doesn't take away my authority or office or strategy, but that's what it matters. To the point where in this iteration of our church, we divided the traditional senior pastor job into two where Dave and I have co-led the church based on gifts. Wow. Give us a window into that relationship and the interdependency of gifting there. Yeah, so like I'm a visionary cultural architect sort of main preacher and he's the implementer. And so prompting and planning literally embodied in two people. And so, you know, we'll pray and you know, one thing that happens in our context for example is, you know, we on our planning cycle, which is a very detailed intense planning cycle. It literally says John goes up the mountain. It's it's actually there. As a, as a reference to Moses, right? And I'll go up and I'll sit before the Lord four to six months before another ministry year. And I'll ask him, what do you want to preach? What do you want us to preach to our community? Now, I could preach anything out of the word of God and it would be relevant. It's alive, it's active. But I inquire of the Lord, is there something you want? So let me give you a window into this year. So just before, it was either just in January, 2020 or just before I, I did this. I went up sat with the Lord and said, what do you want to say? Now, I'm just going to share how powerful this is. He said, this year is going to be the theme for this year. This is way before all the crazy we're going through right now. He said is transition. I was (laughs) like, oh my goodness. I'm so glad you didn't tell me how big the capital T was in the transition, right? And then he says, here's what I want you to preach on. Second Timothy, I want you to preach it in its entirety. Well, if you know Second Timothy, it's about perseverance at the end when everything is really scary. He says, I want you to preach on Philemon. Uh, I've never preached on Philemon. Philemon is about slavery, masters, and economic reorientation in the kingdom. Black lives matter, racial tension. Then he says, oh, by the way, I want you to preach four weeks out of the Psalms, and I want you to channel your people's rage and anger into intercession. This is like pre-COVID, pre-all of this. Then he says, oh, by the way, I want you to preach three mini-series out of Exodus. One, remind them I'm the God of the impossible before anything happens. Two, I'm the sustainer of the journey. And three, teach them about portable worship. Wow. Now, I'm not telling you this. Look at me. I heard the Lord. No, 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 no. I'm trying to show you something. Jesus used disciplines to hear the Father because he turned off the God tap, though he had it. So he had to use spiritual disciplines to listen. And he used spiritual gifts to act. So once I had that, I took that to Dave and others. We tested to make sure it was, like I was jokingly saying, not the tacos from last night or the butter chicken or the devil. And then once we got the confirmation, we started building all the plans out of that prompting. Mm. That's just a a concise way of one example of how this goes. Yeah. And for those listening like me who feel like, John, like I'm leading a church and I'm not feeling like I'm hearing God like that. Yes. You know, I feel like he's in it. He's with me. He's helping me. I feel like through the fog, he's leading me. Yeah. Amen. But I don't feel like I'm getting um, that kind of week to week clarity. Right. Um, You know, how would you encourage me, pastor me or point me in the right direction? 
Yeah, you just don't have enough faith. No, I'm totally joking. <laughs> totally joking. No, I hate that. So here, I'm so glad you just said this because this is literally the example of gift tension and gifts. Part of the reason why this happens to me is because of a group of spiritual gifts that I didn't ask for the Lord gave me. Okay. I'm not better or worse, more spiritual or less spiritual. Most people say to me, oh my goodness, you must be so close to the Lord. No, no, it's a gift function. That's mm-hmm. all it is. I would encourage you then, if you can't hear that way, to learn the practices of fasting, solitude, silence, all of that, but also ask the Lord to put some people in your life that might hear like that. Mm. Mutual dependence. So before you go up the mountain, in quotes, <laughs> yes. talk, talk about the spiritual disciplines. You mentioned fasting, prayer. Yeah. Uh, Talk, talk to me about what that looks like in, in practice for you to, to have that time of seeking. Because I think whether or not uh, people are operating that gift of, of hearing God in that way, or however you would define it, I think that for the senior leader, or whether even you're leading a youth ministry or a small group ministry, whatever it is, to have rhythms of seeking God and planning. I just Could you put some texture on what that could look like for us? Totally. So again, let me just reinforce the bias. I believe used, Jesus used spiritual disciplines to hear and get permission. And I believe Jesus used spiritual gifts to do ministry. <laughs> okay? So it's two sides of one coin. If you don't have both, you're in trouble. So the way uh, I, of course, felt the guilt and the burden of becoming a mega monk, like we all do, when we suddenly discover spiritual disciplines. I have to go away for five years. And well, I'm balding and I have a spot. So I'm, I'm, I'm heading in the right direction. You're on the right track. Um, but no, here's what I started doing, uh, pre COVID of course, was I just got into very simple rhythm in the morning. I did my personal devotions at lunch. I prayed for the church in the evening. I prayed for the city Mm. and I just, at three very simple points, it was not 20 minutes or 40 minutes. There are three touch points I did every single day. Uh, uh, every Monday I meet with a woman who's been praying for with, with me for 20 years. Her name is Crystal Flogel. She is a German woman who actually was in Berlin when it fell, if you can imagine, as a child. Uh, She's been praying in this area for 45 years. There's a whole story between her and I. But she prays for me and my ministry every Monday for an hour. She meets with me and prays with me. By the way, just want to say this to all senior leaders. If you do not, this is not a confession moment. This is not an accountability person. But you should ask for the really weird person who scares you in your church to become your prayer partner. Just want to say that out loud. It's going to help you. Can I translate that? I think what you mean by the real word, weird person that, that scares you is like sometimes the intercessors. The That's right. Who are those ones that pray three, four hours a day. Totally. They're they, always the most socially well-adjusted people. Is that the translation? Million percent. Okay. Million percent. But, you know, uh, and you, you don't confess your sin to them, but you... You pray with them. So that happens. That's a rhythm. Then every Tuesday, uh, myself and Dave and one other pastor, every Tuesday for a half an hour, pre-COVID again, would sit with the Lord in solitude by ourselves and then in silence together and ask the Lord if he wanted to say anything every week for half an hour. Mm-hmm. And it's just rhythm. And sometimes he says nothing at all. And sometimes he says very specific things. And so there's just very simple examples. Thursday at lunch, I tend to fast and pray for the coming sermon. So just little touch points. And then, of course, there are more extended times where you go away with a staff or by yourself and you, you know, go up the mountain and do a real retreat, not a youth retreat that's never really retreating because it's total chaos. But uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it doesn't have to be this pressurous thing. I just finished preaching 
uh, before the summer on all the spiritual disciplines. So we've preached on all the gifts and all the disciplines, what they all look like, what they all feel like, how they can be integrated. And with and the rule we have that we find in Scripture is the disciplines are open to all and everyone can do them. Uh, you'll like some more than others by personality or sacred pathway, but they're open. Spiritual gifts are normative and open to all, but they're sovereignly assigned. It's not a buffet. Spiritual experiences like unusual things happening are not guaranteed and happen sometimes. And when they do, you need to find out if it's the devil, God, uh, a medical issue, a psychological issue, or literally what you ate last night. Mm. And it's not normative or guaranteed. Well, hey, we're going to jump back into this conversation in just a second. But before we do, I want to share a little bit about the work of Compassion Canada. As you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a massive impact on our whole world. And this includes the global development work to combat the effects of poverty. And so I want to highlight the work of Compassion because they're on the front lines of global development, serving the most vulnerable who are experiencing the most negative effects of food shortages and decreased access to education. We have an opportunity as a local church here in Canada and beyond to continue to partner with organizations like Compassion who are aiming to relieve poverty and respond effectively to the negative repercussions of this pandemic in our world. For my wife, Rach, and I, we've been on a journey over time with Compassion. It began first with Child Sponsorship Program, and then it's grown over time. And what's encouraged us the most and what we found really meaningful is that as we discovered more and more about the DNA of Compassion, we found out that they work specifically with local churches. Like they are passionate about the local church, deep in the values and culture of Compassion Canada and their global partners is a desire to work with the local church in the regions around the world so they can bring development, service, and holistic care all in the name of Jesus and in a way that lifts up the churches in that community. And that's one reason, amongst many, why we're so excited to partner with Compassion on this podcast. Here's the picture. Here's the dream in our heart. What if churches in Canada were able to support churches around the world who are reaching the most vulnerable? Compassion can be a bridge for us to do just that. So I want to encourage you, reach out to the team at Compassion and find out more about what they're up to, specifically in the midst of this pandemic. Find out what it means or what it could look like to build a bridge with Compassion to support local churches around the world as they reach out to the least of these in Jesus' name. You can find out a ton more about this at ccln.ca slash compassion. Okay, let's jump back into today's conversation. If I can shift gears a little bit, I want to I want to chat a little bit about cultivating spiritual disciplines. And so I want to look at it two ways, and you can take it however you want, John. At first, I want to ask you, how do we help our congregation and our staff cultivate spiritual disciplines? And I, I that was my first thought. But then I was thinking, um, even for the heart of the leader, you know, for us listening, we're saying, oh, man, I don't have those baked in rhythms in my life. Like I don't have those, you know, what is the process? So you take it either way, whether you want to speak to us as leaders directly, how we cultivate it or how we can cultivate it in our congregation. Cause I think both are important, but if we want to walk in some of the things you're talking about, I just feel like now more than ever, spiritual disciplines are so hard to come by. We have such a distracted world. There's so much vying for our attention and the busyness is not just like a way of life. It's an addiction mm-hmm. and it, it's just, it's sunk in so deep. And then add to that a cell phone that we're addicted to as well and our people are addicted to. So just 
how do we, how have you been able to help people cultivate this? And what would you say to us if we want to follow in that direction? Sure. So my bias as the, as a gift, a gift teacher is going to come out first. You cannot do what you have not defined. So one of the most important things you have to do is actually define what you mean by fasting. What do you mean by meditation? What do you mean by study? What do you, Christian study, Christian, like, what do you mean? Is fasting Weight Watchers for Jesus? No, no, like this really matters. Is fasting, what is fasting? When I did all the study in fasting, I was shocked to find out that almost every single reference to fasting in the Bible was reactive, not proactive. But almost all the teaching I'd heard on fasting in my life was to get something from God, proactive. And I went, hold on, what? Almost every fasting moment happens after disaster, Mm -hmm. happens during disaster, happens during lament, happens in so like, so, so I was like, oh, hold on a sec. I can't cultivate something I haven't even defined. Mm -hmm. Number one. Number two, I cannot teach on what I have not tried. And Mm -hmm. I want to make this really clear because all of us are busy I have one of these two. I have three children. I'm living through COVID. I mean, everything that went sideways in your life went sideways here too. So there's no, there's no greener grass. It's just more grass. Just want to say that out loud for all of us. Size of church doesn't matter. All of it. But here's, you can't, um, you have to try it, not master it. Mm-hmm. This is so important. You know, if you had to master something before you taught on it, you couldn't teach scripture. You just, just try fasting and say to your congregation, I literally hate fasting because I really like my burritos. Like, great. And say, but I tried this, this, and this, or I fasted from Instagram. You know, I had a, I, I, I went into the digital desert for six months or whatever it is, but beginning to show your people that it's exactly the same and that you're trying to model, because again, here's the great undergirthing sort of question. If Jesus had to use spiritual disciplines to listen Hmm. because he chose it. And Jesus had to use spiritual gifts to minister from. How in the world do you think that you can actually do ministry outside of those two categories in a fundamental way? The answer is you can't. Hmm. They're not additions. These are not like, oh, we're going to choose a different philosophy of ministry where we used to be missional churches and now we're going to be a mega church. No, 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 no. These are like bedrock. Jesus modeled this for a reason Mm. because this is how you do this thing. And so if you want your expectation, your church to go up and the presence of the spirit to go up, and if you want to hear the voice of God more and you want to be encouraged, rebuked and formed more, these things aren't sort of like additions. This is not the next app that you download. This is the hardware. Mm. This is the hardware. If you believe Jesus was your model. Do you feel like we've maybe built job rhythms for pastors? They're incompatible with that kind of life. One million percent. Yeah, sure. And, and you know what the interesting thing is, though, lots of us are feeling guilty. I think a lot of pastors would tell you that COVID showed them not their addiction to busyness. I'm not going to let other people speak to that. It did show a lot of us. Uh, the the need for Sabbath weekly. Yeah. So so yes, 
Some of it's congregationally based, some of it's our own addictions. But I would say, and it's even here in the church that talks about this all the time, we're still struggling with this. How do you make sure that when you have someone come in, their spiritual gifts are actually the center point of their job description? Hmm. Like, if you expect someone to run a ministry where they have to be merciful and they don't have the gift of mercy, good luck with that. They're net, they're never, they can learn the dis, every, we jokingly say here, almost every single spiritual gift can become a discipline. You can have mercy as a discipline, but not have an ease of the spirit as a gift. Right. But I think a lot of us are put in positions where our job descriptions violate the sovereign assignments God has planted in us. Hmm. Which disempowers us, makes us feel guilty. Our people don't like us. And then, you know, we have the mortality rate of burnout and giving up because we're accessing our own well and not an eternal well. Hmm. As you reflect on this last six months, um, what do you think are some of the lessons or themes that we need to make sure we grab hold of, you know? Um, and I'm talking not just about COVID. I'm actually, I'm talking about the racial tension and the unrest around that. I'm talking about the fact that we live in a really profound moment in history. And I feel like um, that there's like something that God wants to do in the heart of the church, but in Christian leaders to move our attention from one thing, maybe to another thing. I just would love any insight from you about that. So, you know, you know this because you're a friend of mine. I So this is year 23 for me. And, you know, Enneagram 8, take the hill, all in, we're going to do this revival for Toronto, being orthodox, intellectual, blah, blah, blah. I mean, I almost quit 10 weeks ago. So I and my wife looked at me and she said, I have like, what's wrong with you? So, I, I mean, I want to say uh, being a thought leader, let alone a leader, in this time sucks. It's terrible because it's not just, we don't know where to go. The world is deconstructing itself and has no answers what the construction should be. There's also a shedding of literal Western culture. There's a lot of uneducation out there and a lot of people promoting a lot of things they haven't even researched. I'll say this. It's actually so scary to me. I feel like we're almost living through the French revolution where the French were so upset at the monarchy for living in such wealth, they just started beheading everyone, even if they didn't deserve it. So it's a really scary time. So I just want to admit that for, you know, for all of us. And if you felt like quitting, you're in good company. We all did. Then Jesus sat beside me and said, did I give you permission? And I said, no. He said, well, then that's done. And I lost that fight. But um, so here's, here's a few lessons I, I'd like to bring up. They're old ones for me, but they've been enforced. Number one, um, calling is the bedrock to ministry. And so I just, I want to say this again. There's a lot of people who are working in churches that are great people who love Jesus, who are gifted, but I don't know if they're all called. And I mean, vocationally called, we're all called. We're all priests of God. We all access all that. But when I was again in, I've probably had two or three moments of wanting to like close down in ministry, but I would say I would use the the word like clinical depression, despair. I've had a clinical moment before, almost in a mini church split here, but despair was a different one. One of the only things that kept me going again was calling. Mm. Um, I, I did this actually at um, 
at uh, Connexus's um, Canadian Church Conference they do a few yeah. years ago, where I, just like spiritual gifts, I walk through calling theology, because there's four calling theolo- vocational theologies in the scripture, and they're all very different. There's, you know, Paul and Jeremiah, you're screwed, you have no choice, I've called you, it's done, don't even talk to me, just move on. John the Baptist, you know, you didn't have a say, I don't care how much of an Arminian you are, tough, it's happening. Uh, there's the family calling Hannah to Samuel. I will give this child unto the Lord. Very anti-North American. What, what about my psychology degree? Irrelevant. Mom's dedicated to the ministry. Okay. The third one is Timothy. The community puts their hands and says, we see a grouping of gifts in you. We want to affirm them. Or we lay hands on you. We affirm this go. And the fourth one is in the book of Acts, I think it's 17. It just says they voted on elders. <laughs> said you and you, right? Um, the reason why you have to have all four, by the way, is because some of them feel very supernatural, some of them feel semi-supernatural, and some of them don't at all. And you can begin to start dismissing each other's calling culture or calling experience because you're like, well, you think you're so spiritual because Gabriel showed up to you and I'm just a guy, a business guy who became a pastor. Throw that all out. Mm. Uh, when, you, when you start mutually submitting and realizing there's four models, not one, a lot more unity on leadership teams. But the point is when everything falls apart, were you vocationally called by the Trinity before the beginning of time to be a leader in this moment? If the answer is yes, stay the course. Paul says it explicitly. I don't care if you judge me. I don't even judge myself. Jesus is way more terrifying. I will be judged on judgment day by him. So you can put your Twitter away, your Instagram, you can say anything you want. But just so you know, you're not as dangerous as Jesus is. So I'm going to live my calling theology through that lens. Mm-hmm. So... Calling is critical, and we need a new generation of people who don't just think ministry is cool or ministry is interesting or it's a way to express my artistic belief because I didn't get into the movie industry. We need people who are literally commissioned by the living Jesus to be bearers of the gospel unashamedly and are called into varieties of all different types of ministry. And we're, again, all called I don't believe in a second sec, secular sacred divide. If you're a nurse or a doctor or a plumber, stay at home, dad, uh, you know, you can, you do all things to the glory of God, use spiritual gifts, but we need vocational leaders who in this post-Christian, de-Christian, racially tensioned, hostile, deconstruction, dangerous, politically fraying moment are called to proclaim the Lordship of Jesus Christ and his word and forget what everyone says. We need this. Desperately. Every generation where society fell apart, the Puritans is an example, the Reformers is an example, the Church Fathers is an example. When you, when you read beyond the theological terms to their walk with Jesus, they will say, I've been commissioned mm. by the living Jesus. If you do not have that bedrock thing, trouble. Trouble. What if there's a young leader listening and uh, he would say or she would say, I don't know. I don't know yet. I'm, t- I'm kind of testing. I think I am. I'm kind of testing the waters. What, yeah. what would you say to them? Ah, and I would say, sorry, sounding like the, the ongoing drum beating. I'd say, perfect. How do we always test the voice of God? We do it in community. Is it backed by, is it backed by the scriptures? Is it reasonable? Are there markers that God is calling you? How many times have I been in a context where someone says, oh, I'm called in the ministry, and everyone goes, Oh, how do I not insult you and be Canadian and still say sorry and say you're crazy? Yeah. Like, trust me, the people around you know 
even half the time before you know if you're called. Yes, there are clusters of gifts like the Timothy the Timothy experience that will you know sort of show you what type of calling you might be going into. But I, I, all I'm saying is, when literally the church is turning on itself and the left and the right are yelling and everyone's deconstructing, I'm just telling you, calling is what you've got and not much else. The second thing I would like to say, I'm literally about to preach this to our church. In the book of Exodus, when Moses is commissioned at 80 years old, side note, everyone, at 80 years old by God to go into ministry. I just want to say that. It's very interesting if you read closely in Exodus 3. God says he's seen the suffering of his people, but before he says that, he says, I remember my word. What's happening right now is most people think that God will be moved by injustice, and it's true, but God is moved more by his own word and his own promises and injustice. So the second thing I would say that I have learned and reaffirmed in this season is, what are the universal promises to the church that God will never, ever, ever lie about? Like the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And also, are there specific promises that have been tested in local communities where God has spoken and you know it? That's how you stand. Because I'm about to say to our church, I'm about to list every single controversial thing in our church vaccines, no vaccines. When do you open? When do you not open? Black Lives Matter, uh, indigenous rights. I'm just, I'm enlisting everything that everyone's angry about in our whole church. I'm going to say, this is why we can't secede. And then I'm going to say one thing. Oh, but just so you know, everyone, God promised something to our church. God doesn't lie. And he said it to all of us. So that's where I'm going to put my, that's where I'm putting my chips. Mm. There, There. So calling and promises. And the third one is this. Character, 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 character. I shared this years ago, I think on this, another version of this podcast, but in other places. The most important prayer every leader in this country should be praying every day is 1 Corinthians 13. Make me like this. Mm-hmm. Because we've just seen another leader, right, fall in the last 48 hours, another horrific sex scandal, another university tarnished. Um, we are always this close, every one of us to becoming Samson, <laughs> every one of us. And I just, I, I just want to say I'm 44. I'm turning 45. I'm not as, I'm not as relevant anymore. You don't look a, over 43, buddy. Yeah. He lies. All lies. No, but like, like, you know, as I get older, all the cachet that was is gone. And, you know, I'm surrounded now by millennials, but even more Gen Z's on my staff and the cultural uh, generational graps, gaps are growing. And here's what, here's what I keep knowing, even as I'm getting difficult feedback towards myself and my leadership. Um, biblically defined love stops us from breaking the Ten Commandments. Biblically defined love allows us to hold the electricity of the gifts of the Spirit well in the long term. Mm. Moses sinned with the staff of God, and it was a gift. So, my encouragement to all of us is we have to beg the father and the son to send the spirit in such a way that first Corinthians 13 is just non-negotiable. It's just non-negotiable because, because in the end, you know, like I already made reference, I think it's first Corinthians four. I think it is when I die, everything I didn't do for Jesus is going to burn. Everything, every Instagram post, every sermon, every section of a deliverance that was off, like 
love. And I don't mean like cultural, our definite cult, biblical love. Mm-hmm. And maybe lastly, I'll just say, could we actually love the scriptures and actually believe them, please? Anyway, yeah, there you go. There's a few things in COVID. Before we keep going in the chat for a little longer, can we just pray um, for everyone listening for those three things, the calling, promises, and character? Yeah, sure. And then you added a fourth, a love for the scripture. And um, I just want to, I just want you to pray for uh, me and for everyone listening um, that are wondering about their calling, question their calling, who are wavering on the promises of God, and that we would have just a deep abiding righteousness that reflects Jesus. Yeah, sure. Yeah, just Lord, Lord, uh, have mercy, Christ, have mercy. Father and Son, send the Holy Spirit across uh, the Canadian church and anyone else listening, even beyond Canada. Uh, we are animated dust. We're here today and gone tomorrow. Uh, you're eternal and we're not. <laughs> we're only made in your image. You are who you are. Uh, number one, uh, by the voice of your community, by the voice of gifts, but also by the prompting of the Spirit, would you confirm people's vocational calling if it is truly there? Um, yeah, and pray for the many who aren't vocationally called, encourage them as they bring the kingdom of God into their own field. Uh, number number two, we pray for the promises of God to become paramount in our minds in this moment of uh, decay and distrust and misinformation and conspiracy theories and all of it. Uh, help the promises of God not to, they won't lose their power. Help us to say yes and amen. Mm-hmm. Uh, we pray for First Corinthians 13 that you would make every pastor, every leader listening love. And it's impossible because 1 Corinthians 13 is agape love, God-given love. It's actually the love that binds the Trinity together, which is humanly impossible to imitate our access without an external source that is not us. Holy Spirit, do this. Please, just we, we definitely we need this in us and around us. And lastly, not only a love for the Scriptures, a submission to the Scriptures. Not trying to play games with what it could have meant, but we really want it to mean this. Like, Lord, help us to submit to your written word again. Mm. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Well, thanks, John, for making time to be with us on the podcast today. As I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, if you want to hear more from John on some of the themes we discussed, I really recommend you order John's book, Convergence, today. You can find the Amazon link on the blog for this episode alongside some of our favorite moments and clips from the interview. In just a second, I want to tell you about next week's guest. But before I do, I want to thank Compassion Canada for partnering with us on the Canadian Church Leaders podcast and for making this podcast available each week for you. Compassion is a justice-minded organization that deeply believes in the work of the local church around the world. That's why we love partnering with Compassion. This podcast exists and the Church Leaders Network exists to support pastors. And that really is the heart of Compassion, to build the local church around the world. And what I love about their work is that they've built their entire strategy around local church communities. Compassion has over 8,000 church partners around the world that they work with to serve children and families in their direct spheres. And so if you're a church leader considering what your global mission strategy should include this coming year, I want to encourage you to get in touch with the team at Compassion. You can find all you need at ccln.ca slash compassion. Okay, 
I'm really excited to share about next week's guest. On Monday, we're going to have Miles McPherson, former NFL player and now pastor of Rock Church in San Diego on the podcast. Shortly after the death of George Floyd, I saw Miles on CNN being interviewed by Anderson Cooper, and I was so struck by the way he spoke boldly into the moment and represented the church so well. So we reached out to Miles and his team, and he graciously said yes to being on the podcast. Miles recently released a book called The Third Option, which addresses issues of racism and how the church can be part of continued reconciliation. So we talked about that, talked about his story coming from NFL to pastoring, talked about how to build a congregation that reflects diversity of the community it's part of, and so much more. And so I can't wait to share it with you. With all that said, thanks for tuning in. Please, if you haven't already, give us a review on whatever platform you're listening on. Share with your friends. It would mean a lot to us, and we'll see you soon. Take care.